continue in our first Peter preaching series. So while you turn there, what is it that inspires people? What is it that gets them ready to do whatever it is that they need to do? What does it take to rouse people onward to victory? Movies love to focus on grand speeches. This picture of Lord of the Rings, Aragorn and the army before the black gates of Mordor in Middle-earth. He gives a great speech there to rally the troops forward. Even ESPN has a fascination with getting people rallied and hyped up to play. So picture the college basketball coach at halftime in the NCAA championship game getting the team rallied because they're down five and they need to come back and win in the second half. Teams, people, armies, they need to be called in order to put forth their best. They need to be rallied and built up and gotten excited about things. Sometimes we need that. We need a call to see the bigger picture so that the smaller things in life are put into perspective. As Christians, we have a far greater purpose for everything we do. We have a far greater rallying cry for all that we need to do. We may struggle. We may suffer. But when we keep an eternal perspective, we can undergo any trial in this life with hope. And we can be strengthened for every fight because Christ has mercifully given us life. We already have new life and we await a yet more glorious future when our full salvation will be made complete. So here's the proposition or the thesis for this sermon. Because of his rich mercy, God gives salvation. You may have picked up on that hint, that, that theme as we went through the order. God gives salvation. So with that intro, let's, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Lord God, we thank you that we await a full salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Father, as we walk through this text, I pray that you would guide us, that you would guide our hearts and point us to Christ. Help us to meditate on him this morning. We ask it in his name. Amen. So last week, we looked at Peter's opening two verses in chapter 1. And in those two verses, Peter referred to us as elect exiles or elect sojourners. We are chosen by God and thus hated by the world. That's the, the trade-off there. The hate of the world leads to persecution and at least to suffering for the saints of God. But we, as suffering saints, are not left without hope. We're not left without encouragement. And so the first point for this morning is that because God gives salvation, we must hope. Simple. We must hope. Well, this doxology that Peter begins with is the start of the next section of the book. Verses 3 through 12 are actually one long sentence in the Greek. But since we cannot get through that full section because there's just too much rich material, we're going to just focus on verses 3 through 5 today. And this is Peter's doxology portion of that sentence. 
So it may seem like an odd time to dive into a doxology, but it actually fits here very well. Peter has just blessed his readers in verse 2. If you look back, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, how is it that Peter can bless us in this way? Well, he blesses us by calling upon the one who is eternally blessed to give us grace and peace. A blessing is always given from greater to the lesser. Sons don't pronounce blessings on their fathers. It's the other way around, especially in the Old Testament. The father is the one who blesses the son. And ultimately, all the blessings must come from God or they are really groundless in the end. So notice that Peter writes, blessed be God. He's not commanding us to bless God. Peter's not telling us to pronounce blessings on God. It's quite the opposite. Peter is declaring that the Lord is the eternally holy and blessed one. See, we cannot add glory or honor or blessing to God. We are only ever called to recognize the fact that God is eternally and infinitely blessed and perfect in his nature. He reveals his greatness to us, and then we admire him and we praise him for it. And really, that is the biblical model, and thus how Peter begins this doxology. Furthermore, Peter did not create this doxology formula either. Peter is known as a very Jewish apostle, and as such, he knew his Old Testament very well. His writings, his sermons, and his actions show that the scriptures were ingrained in his memory. Blessed be God is a common Old Testament blessing used by the patriarchs, by the psalmists, and kings of Israel. It was an established tradition to call upon the blessedness of the Almighty God. But there's one stark difference between the Old Testament blessing formula and then what Peter writes to us here. He makes a crucial addition. He adds that God is also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with greater revelation, with the coming of Christ, Peter adds that glory back to God. That he declares that blessedness of God because it has been made even more well known through the revealing of Christ. So with Christ came the knowledge both of who God the Father and who God the Son are in a way not previously fully revealed. That's not to say the persons of the Trinity were unknown in the Old Testament. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are throughout the Old Testament. But the distinctions and the clarity of the doctrine of the Trinity was far more subtle. But now, in the New Testament era, with the greater revelation that God provided himself, the level which we may understand his greatness is dramatically increased. So blessed be God is still an appropriate statement. But we clearly understand more about our amazing God and thus we see more of his blessedness through Christ. The last thing to note on this blessing is that we are included in this doxological statement. Another reason that God the Father is blessed is that he is the Father of our Lord. We are brought into the relationship of the Trinity. That's not to say we take on divinity, but it does mean that our union with Christ means that we too are sons of God the Father. And so yet another reason that God is blessed is that we are connected to him through Christ. God is also blessed because of his character. He is a God of mercy, of rich mercy. And our very salvation is dependent upon this great mercy of the Father. Mercy is normally defined as not receiving the bad things that you have earned. Mercy is slightly different from grace, which is receiving good things that you did not earn. 
But Peter describes it as a great mercy. He describes it that way because he intends more than the normal definition of mercy. The word in verse 3 for mercy is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word hased. Hased is often translated as steadfast love, which is a good translation. It can also be translated as covenant loyalty or steadfastness. And I think that's a good picture of the mercy here that we are talking about. It is according to the great covenant loyalty of God that he has mercy on us. And that wonderful steadfastness has led to innumerable blessings for you, the saints. As it is written, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So it is according to this great covenant loyalty that we have been born again. We have been remade, refashioned, and reconstructed according to the great mercy of God. The verb here is an active verb. God is the active agent at work. The Lord is the one who causes us to be born again. His work in our hearts is the first cause of our transformation. And really this flies in the face of worldly thinking. First, according to the world, it is impossible to be born again. That makes no sense to them. But second is the fact that we're not the cause of this rebirth. Well, the world has to agree that we had no role in our initial birth. We did not choose whether or not to be born. But the more abhorrent thing in their mind is that if we could be born again, that we wouldn't be the ones causing it. Well, really, they insist on autonomy. And their insistence on autonomy is delusional to the point of irrationality. Rebirth does not make sense to the natural man. And that's, this takes us back to Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John 3. In verse 3 of that chapter, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a leading teacher and Pharisee in Israel. And yet he did not understand what it meant to be reborn. He thought Jesus was just talking about physical rebirth, as if you could re-enter into your mother's womb and start life over. But the rebirth Jesus was speaking of was a spiritual one. And this is why he said, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus and every other man is born into a fallen world with fallen bodies that are decaying and fading every day. But as severe and tragic as that truth is, the far more important reality is that the soul of the natural man is dead from birth. Mankind are born as dead men walking like real life zombies. They revel in their works of death till the penalty for their evil strikes home. And so how great is the mercy of God that he has transformed us from dead men walking to having awakened souls. The Spirit of God has blown into our hearts without warning, without permission or request, and regenerated that which was beyond all worldly help. There was nothing in us that could warrant or demand such an intervening act of God. And yet He has freely, on His own initiative and for His own delight, caused us to be spiritually reborn. We have been reborn as citizens of the new order to a far brighter and more beautiful promised land than Canaan ever could have been. Well, Peter continues on in the text to tell us that his rebirth is to a living hope. Remember what we just stated about our former lives. No longer are we in bondage to death and to hell. 
Now we are recreated unto a living hope. Hope in this world is a very fleeting thing. If we put it in ourselves, then we will let ourselves down. If we put it in others and leaders, celebrities, friends or family, they will eventually fail us. And death will end all our hope in them or ourselves. Hope in the world is nothing but wishful thinking and idolatry. The things of this world were never meant to be the source or the foundation of any of our hope. Our living hope is far from wishful thinking because it is based on the unchanging, eternal, and good God. So unlike the terminal world, God's kingdom will not fail to exceed every good hope and expectation we can have as believers. It is a living hope because it is sourced and hoped, or it, because our hope is secured in life. It is sourced in the life of God. So not only is there spiritual life now, but the promise of physical rebirth and a physical earth to walk on later. Wayne Grudem, who's a commentator, defines living hope as the eager, confident expectation of the life to come. Our living hope is one that is anchored in the never-ending life to come. And yet that coming life is so efficacious and powerful that it overflows back into the present as unquenchable hope. So the things promised are so assured that we can see with the eyes of faith that which is not yet here. It's seeing the, the, the sky lighten in the hours before sunrise. It's the fever breaking when you've been sick. It's seeing your fiancé at the other end of the church knowing you'll be married in mere moments. Living hope is knowing that whatever befalls in this life, that Christ will be your portion and your inheritance forever. Christ is the one who guaranteed this rebirth to a living hope because He Himself lives. He who is the resurrection and the life rose victorious over the grave so that He could bestow life eternal on His saints. And just as He has permanently secured His reign in life, He has made Himself our hope. Our hope is a living hope because Christ, the living God, is our hope. Christ sits at the Father's right hand reigning, and as such, He has the authority to ensure that those united to Him will also reign. And because this is so certain, because His reign has already started, and because there is, our eternity is already secured, Paul can write in Ephesians 2 that God raises us up with Him, that is Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our living hope is so certain and secure that we already are said to be present in glory with Christ now. We are so assuredly citizens of heaven that we have one foot on this earth and in this life, while at the same time we are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We see God's blessedness through His great mercy, which has caused us to be reborn to a living hope in Christ. At every step and level of our salvation, we see the fingerprints of a holy God who loves His people. And as a result of His great mercy, we are led to an internal and an undying hope. We are led to Christ Himself, who is our living hope. Well, this is a magnificent hope, but what difference does this make to saints suffering in this life? To those struggling with loneliness and loss, does this matter? For those who are suffering chronic pain every day, the deterioration of the body, is there really any hope for them? 
for the young struggling to understand what to do with their lives, for couples fighting for their marriages, for those being persecuted for their faith, and for those whose faith is weak. Does this hope make any difference? For our living hope in Christ makes every difference. God knows the struggles that we undergo in this life. Christ was tempted in every way way we are, yet was without sin. He suffered pain and rejection beyond anything we will ever bear. And he was even forsaken by his father so that we would never be forsaken ourselves. Christ knows what we suffer and he knows what awaits us in glory because he has secured our room in the father's mansion and he is already there waiting on us. Peter knew that saints undergoing suffering needed to be reminded of God's faithfulness and to be given that hope. The only hope that can sustain us through every trial and difficulty in this life is the hope of glory in Christ. Never underestimate the power of dwelling Christ, dwelling on Christ in eternity with Him. That is the fuel we need to power us through this life. Well, knowing our hope is step one. And knowing what to do with our hope is step two. So the second point is that because God gives salvation, we must rest. We must rest. Rest is one of those words that we react to in a very predictable way. Even as I say the word rest, I want to relax. I want to sit down. I want to take a deep breath. Rest is one of those words in Scripture that is just saturated with rich theology. It's similar to peace, and the two normally go together. Israel was promised rest in the land if they obey. The whole conquest plan was for Israel to obey God and that he would then drive out their enemies before them so that they could settle the land. And then when they settled the land, God would give them rest and peace in the land. But if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you will know Israel didn't always do so well obeying the commands of God. And so their rest was spoiled and infringed on more often than not. Well, the promise to Israel was physical rest, but it pointed to a far greater rest in two ways. First, it directed Israel to a perfect rest to come in the next life. Canaan was never meant to be the final promised land, the true, real promised land. It was a sign, it was a sacrament even, to point to Israel, point Israel to the greater promise to come. And we see a picture of that through Abraham. Hebrews 11.10 Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Before Israel even made it to the promised land, Abraham knew that there was a greater promise that Israel and Canaan pictured. Knowing the greater reality to come, Abraham hoped in God and rested in God. And another way to say the same thing is that Abraham rested in all the promises of God to him. Well, second, it directed Israel to rest in God's promises in their day. Abraham never got to see Israel dwell in the land while on this earth. And yet he trusted and rested in God's promises, knowing that they would be fulfilled one day. Israel never enjoyed a perfect rest in Canaan, and yet they could rest in God and in his promises. And that's no different than what we are called to today. We are called to rest in Christ just as the saints of old. Jesus had not yet come for them, but they believed in God the same as we do now. Christ is the full embodiment and guarantor of our rest. He is the one who guarantees and secures it. 
He is the Lord of the Sabbath and its ultimate significance. And therefore, Jesus is our rest. And so the promised land pointed both to the physical rest to come and the spiritual rest we already have now in Christ. While Canaan was a wonderful land, the inheritance God promises us is far greater than that fallen land. And before we discuss Peter's description of our inheritance, I want you to understand how interconnected our inheritance and our salvation are. Those who are born again are set in motion in one specific direction. Through Christ's work, we are set on a collision course with our inheritance in the heavenly places. One example is that in the vacuum of outer space, an object set in motion will continue on its set path without slowing down or without deviation unless it's acted upon by an outside force. And yet that example is really incomplete because there is no outside force that can alter our course because the Spirit of God is guiding us home. And Scripture tells us that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. We are following God's set sovereign plan that ends in our glorification in Christ. We are reborn into our inheritance because we are born into the royal family. And our heavenly Father will not fail to give us all things in Christ. Well, now let's talk about the inheritance descriptions that Peter uses in verse 4. And he gives us four descriptions. We're going to walk through those. So first, our inheritance is imperishable. It is undying, it is immortal, and it is eternal. Now this word is only used in Scripture for heavenly realities and blessings. This word is never used in Scripture for anything that can pass away or deteriorate. 1 Corinthians 15 uses imperishable to refer to our resurrected bodies in glory. And there we see a picture of the imperishable God who will perfectly keep our future imperishably. Imperishable is an intrinsically godly term. It can refer only to those good things that come from God because He is the only one who is truly imperishable. Our inheritance is imperishable because God Himself is eternally self-existing. He always is. He is life itself and the source of all life. This word, the same word, is used in several places in the New Testament to describe God Himself. In Romans 1 and 1 Timothy 1. Therefore, ultimately, we can be sure that our inheritance is imperishable because it is guaranteed by the imperishable one. And because fellowship with God is our ultimate inheritance to begin with. Well, the second description is that our inheritance is undefiled. Unlike Israel and Canaan, sin and failure cannot ever affect the eternal inheritance we have in Christ. If it was up to us to earn this inheritance, then we could absolutely mess up this reward. In fact, we would most definitely fail to procure anything but God's wrath on our sin. But because of the perfection of Christ and his already completed work on our behalf, our inheritance is untouchable. Adding to this surety is the fact that this word is used to describe Christ as our high priest in Hebrews chapter 7. Our inheritance is predominantly fellowship with Christ himself, who has ensured that we will one day be undefiled by sin. Third description, our inheritance is unfading. Now, my initial thought on this description was that Peter's referring to the eternality 
of our inheritance. And while our inheritance is eternal, imperishable already covered that. And much better. Unfading is really talking about a different topic. And this refers more to beauty and to pleasure. So when Scripture speaks of fading, it's normally referring to earthly beauty. This is Isaiah 48. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Human beauty fades. Earthly beauty fades. Things that bring some level of excitement or pleasure at first fade over time. This is a thrill that comes with, or there is a thrill that comes with a new car, new clothes, a hobby, a gift. But at some point, that pleasure is going to fade. Kids are never more excited than Christmas morning with their new toys. But it may be the next day, and suddenly they're bored. And they're complaining to the parents who just bought them those toys, we're bored. Well, there's no joy from anything on this earth that can avoid the fade of time. But the promise we have is that God's beauty is unending and never fading. The very one who created our souls to seek out beauty and to love beauty is the one who can perfectly fulfill that desire for pure beauty. We were made to delight in God and we will only therefore be at perfect rest when we come home to our inheritance and rest in God and in his character. Only then will every desire of our souls be perfectly met and exceeded. And then we will be at perfect rest. Well, the fourth and final description of your inheritance is that it is being kept in heaven for you. There is a militaristic tone to this word. It can also be translated to guard or to preserve. The idea is that our inheritance is being safely kept in heaven with the Lord God Almighty. And no one can take anything away from the Lord God Almighty. They can't take his saints away from him. And they can't even take their inheritance away from him. We already noted that if our inheritance was earned by us, then we would not have one. Well, in the same way, if it were up to us to protect our inheritance, then we would have no inheritance. But here, here Peter tells us that God is guarding and protecting our inheritance so that we can safely arrive and take possession of it. Because God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly trustworthy, we can know that our inheritance is safe with Him. He is continually keeping our inheritance for us. So now that Peter has completed his description of our inheritance, he comes back to the us from verse 3. So you, whom God has caused to be reborn to a living hope, are being guarded by God's power. And what a wonderful thought that is, is that we are being guarded by God's power. And we could really stop and reflect on that one phrase for hours. God's infinite power is currently guarding you. The Lord is a century protecting both the inheritance that awaits you in glory and you now. He guards both to ensure that you arrive safely in glory to take possession of your inheritance. From start to finish, God ensures your salvation is completed. He causes you to be reborn. He walks you through this life and he takes you home to be with him. One commentator writes that the symmetry is perfect. God keeps the inheritance for us and he keeps us for the inheritance. He keeps the treasure for us and he guards us so that we will properly enjoy it. Well, Peter also writes that we are guarded through faith and unto salvation. 
We endure every trial and difficulty in this life through faith in Christ. It is as we trust in Him, walk with Him, and rest in Him that we are guarded and protected. We are 100% active in the process, and yet God is 100% at work in us and through us in our rebirth and guarding that enables our 100% involvement. What an amazing mystery our faith is, and yet it doesn't stop there. We are also guarded unto salvation. Now, Peter doesn't just mean our initial confession of faith. He's not just talking about our justification or our sanctification. Here, salvation is meant to be the entirety of our redemption. God is guarding us, which ensures, as Roman 8 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so when God brings us to our eternal home to enjoy him forevermore, our salvation will finally be made complete. Not only will we receive the fullness of our salvation and see God's plan in our lives clearly, but that salvation will be proclaimed to all, that God's name might be magnified and his blessedness be made known to all creation. Let's conclude. We began with the proposition that because of his rich mercy, God gives salvation. We then looked at two points. Because God gives salvation, we must hope and we must rest. Well, the Hollywood depiction of grand battle speeches, sports, and pep talks are great in theory. But all the things they focus on for motivation are temporal and fleeting. But the saints have something far more superior. We have an eternal hope and a perfect rest through Christ. So as we undergo trials and persecutions, we are to remind ourselves and one another of the hope that we have. We must learn to rest and the promises that God has made to us. So do you understand that you will inherit the earth through Christ? There is no good thing which the Lord will hold back from us in glory. God is guarding our inheritance even as he keeps and protects us so that we will reach that inheritance. We have a God who carries us from beginning to end to a grand salvation in Christ. So may we all have eyes to see the living hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have indeed secured an eternal and an unfading and an imperishable inheritance for us. You have brought us a full and a rich salvation. And yet while we have the promise of it fully, we are still partway through the process. And yet it is secured, it is certain. And so, Father, help us to look forward with eyes of hope to the day when it will be made complete where our salvation will be finally finished, where we stand in glory with glorified bodies, dwelling in the presence of Christ. Help us to reach that day, for we know you guard us, and we know it is sure. Help us to cling to Christ as we await that day, and to find great strength and hope through it. We ask it in his name. Amen.